You are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary at Iowa. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. If you don't have a problem of evil, then you've got a bigger problem. That's one of the lines that uh, I picked up somewhere along the way in my graduate studies or my doctoral degree. If you don't have a problem of evil, then you've got a bigger problem. Sat down in this episode with Dr. Philip Tallon. Uh, Phil Tallon is a friend. He's also a professor of theology and chair of the Department of Apologetics at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. In this podcast episode, we talk about, well, the problem of evil. We also talk about some responses to it and delineate between defenses and theodicies. What's the difference between those? And then briefly touch on Dr. Talon's own approach to the problem of evil, which is to consider it aesthetically or in terms of beauty and design and what might, what resources might be available in that way of thinking. Encourage you to tune in. If you are exploring the problem of evil, if you want to have some pastoral, develop some pastoral implications and some pastoral practices uh, out of a good theology, today's episode is for you. So, Dr. Talon, let me start off with let's call it not an easy question, but maybe a straightforward one. What is evil? And why is it a problem? <laughs> uh, well, I think that the, I mean, the notion of evil, I mean, carries with it a sort of a bit of self-explanatory um, sense of why it's a problem, which is to say we, by evil, we mean things that are bad, um, things that we, all other things being equal, wouldn't want to happen. Um, and so uh, there are lots of evils that we experience in our day. You know, stub your toe. That's a tiny little evil, but it's still a little evil. Um, if... Uh, you um, suffer pain or loss, you know, that um, that can be an evil to you if you would prefer that it didn't happen. And, um, and then, of course, there are great big evils. You know, there are things that we can't, you know, we would prefer not to happen kind of based on our understanding of things. So, the, you know, the Holocaust, um, uh, you know, sort of some terrible murder, um, all of these things are uh, uh, evils. And we, you know, I think we have natural intuitions that you know, tell us that there are just, these things are bad. And so that's what we mean when we talk about evils. So how do we distinguish between things that we wish wouldn't happen any, any point mm-hmm. and things that we only wish wouldn't happen because, well, they impacted us. Mm-hmm. So I don't really care about a storm that happens somewhere out in the sea, but when it gets too close to land and causes flooding or wind devastation or whatever else, then I call that an evil. How do we distinguish between evil, something being evil in one sense or in one setting, but not evil in another? Yeah, that's a great question because obviously there are sort of what we might call natural evils um, that are really only bad because they affect uh, people, right? I mean, so, you know, some tsunamis I'm sure have been happening for a long time, but it's not until people came to all down the coast that tsunamis became this huge tragic problem. And, and so I, I don't think that it's, um, that necessarily causes an issue because we can just sort of say when you have, you know, these kind of, uh, huge natural phenomenon that, you know, cause uh, suffering for people, that's when they're evils for us. Um, that doesn't mean that we're talking about relativism or something like that. We're just kind of recognizing that there are certain conditions in which we recognize things as evil. And, um, uh, but then there are other times when, you know, 
I don't know, earthquakes or, you know, um, uh, hurricanes or reshaping the natural world in ways that maybe we find wonderful. Grand Canyon or mm. mountains, the Himalayas, that kind of thing. Um, and because they don't hurt anybody, we don't have to call them evils or we don't have to say that they're bad in any way. So I just finished watching a show on Netflix called Afterlife with uh, Ricky Gervais. And he's atheist, not nihilist. And he kind of comes to this conclusion at the end of the show that it's the it's the brevity of life that makes it all the sweeter that makes it mm-hmm. that makes it precious, and this the character has been re- wrestling with the with the death of his wife. Mm-hmm. Now, in some ways, at premature death, she dies of cancer. In some ways, that we would call that an evil, and I think that kind of the character at the start of the show would would would, uh, if not philosophically call it an evil, would would still describe it in pretty uh, devastating terms. And yet through the show comes to this conclusion that, well, maybe he appreciates and love and loves her and is able to love life in a way because of the death that she has, because this death impacted him. And so in one sense, he might say that, well, evil is still perspectival, Mm -hmm. that evil is not uh, the storm is not evil out at sea. And it's only evil because it impacts people here on Earth. And maybe he might say something that, well, the death of a loved one, even prematurely, is only an evil relative to me and that it makes me feel bad. But cast in a greater scope, it actually wasn't mm-hmm. an evil because of the way it made me appreciate life, something like that. Uh, how might you respond to that? That, that kind of mm-hmm. sense that, yeah, we, we, we know that, that natural evil might be perspectival or, or might be under certain conditions, but we think that that even applies to things that we might more traditionally think of as evil for everybody. Mm-hmm. How might you respond to that? Yeah, well, I think you know the that show, which I haven't seen, but I've seen it on my little thing on Netflix, uh, advertising it. It's tre- trending now. Right? I can't stand Ricky Gervais, so I haven't watched it. But um, the, actually, I do like I do like the first British Office, but everything since then, not so much. I I guess I would say that you know. So again, I'm not advocating a kind of relativism based on your perspective. Then things are different. What I'm saying is that there are certain sort of you might call them states of affairs or just kind of like situations. Um, that um, as you kind of change things about them, then maybe then we recognize that certain kind of evils occur. So hurricanes, not, you know, evil, but then if somebody drowns, as you know, while they're boating as a result of the hurricane, we're like, oh, that's bad. Like we, you know, that's not a good thing to happen. But then this other thing can happen, which is that because there's some larger state of affairs that then kind of occur, we then, there's a kind of redemptive quality that a larger state of affairs can kind of cause um, uh, in a situation. And so there can be kind of a, um, a redemption or a defeat of those evils. And so the classical Christian example, of course, the death of Jesus, this, you know, um, Galilean carpenter is uh, crucified for a crime he didn't commit, flogged. Um, and furthermore, this this person is also the king of the universe, uh, you know, the son of God. What greater evil could there be? But through this evil action, God brings about redemption of the world. And so in some sense, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. It's simultaneously the kind of the most uh, evil thing, but then because of this greater good that comes about for it, it's this, you know, an incredible thing. So there's this dual kind of quality that the the cross has. And likewise, other evils in our lives can have that dimension. My wife's family, um, uh, their, my, my father-in-law, his grandmother was a Titanic survivor remarried as a result, um, had a new family then, which includes my father-in-law and now my wife and now my kids. And so there's a certain sense in which, you know, that the Titanic hadn't sunk, 
my family wouldn't be here. And so you can kind of look back on that and go, oh, like, you know, wow, that's isn't it funny the way that sort of bad things that you kind of you regret in the short term wind up getting mixed up in other good things in a way that they become almost intrinsic to them. And so we almost mm -hmm. can't wholly regret some of the bad things that happen because of these other great goods. And that's just part of the reality of living in a in a world where um, evil is kind of shot through everything. Um, and uh, it is one of the wonderful things about God's design is that God uh, has the uh, the incredible creative power to kind of stitch us back together, as Roman says, you know, to, um, you know, sort of work all things together for the good of those who love him. All things, even bad things, God can work together for our good. That doesn't mean we don't say that, yes, we recognize the sense in which these things are bad. You know, it truly is bad, you know, when, um, when people die prematurely or suffer harm um, or their moral evils. We also recognize that there's an incredible redemptive power that God has to kind of add more information to the situation to the point that God can redeem these things. Um, and so there's that, that quality is probably what um, in a sort of in a secular sense, the Ricky Gervais character is talking about his wife's death was sad, but then he kind of came to really enjoy life and see kind of value. I got to take advantage of every moment. And that was good, you know, and that good kind of came out of that bad thing. And so there's a sort of, there is a sense in which, goods can help to redeem the badness of certain evils. Yeah. So some of the, the classic language around that, that aspect of things is the greater good defense mm -hmm. that, that um, we can account for seemingly contradictory states of affairs that we've got an all good, all knowing, all powerful God who certainly doesn't will evil and is strong enough to prevent it. Um, and yet doesn't and yet and and could know enough to prevent it and yet and yet there is evil in the sense of well how can those two things come to be and one of the answers is this greater good that god takes that which is evil and uses it for for grander purposes mm -hmm. and you also mentioned another more recent uh defense um with good outcomes specifically to you mm -hmm. that had to do with with evil and so philosopher uh, william hasker that mm -hmm. talked about the existentialist theodicy mm -hmm. or, or defense and of course kind of the the final uh great or you can't talk about problem of evil and not mention the free will defense that that god has in mind a certain creature that is capable of love and if a creature is capable of love then they must be capable of not loving or even causing harm and so for God to bring about the world that he desired necessitated a uh, potential for evil. Now, all those run under the language of, of either defense, mm -hmm. like showing um, why something might be the case, why we might have contradict seemingly contradictory states of affairs alongside one another. Or there's another word that's a little bit stronger called theodicy, mm -hmm. which is an explanation for it. Now, you've done some work in theodicy. Can you tell us, and you can correct, you know, expand out my language. What's theodicy? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Well, theodicy is a, a sort of a newly coined word relative to the timeline of human history, which is, uh, uh, Leibniz coined it. Basically, it means defense of God. And it has two words, theo, you know, uh, for God, theology, DK, um, uh, for justification. Sometimes it's, you know, righteousness. So you find this dikaiosone, other, you know, kind of Greek words in the Bible. Um, they're talking about righteousness or justice. Like that's the Greek word that you use. So basically it means kind of a defense of God. Uh, so defense and theodicy are, are not that far apart linguistically in a certain sense, but, um, typically what 
uh, theologians and philosophers mean by the distinction between the two is that a defense is merely a kind of a possibility that's being raised very often just to kind of foil, as it were, the logical problem of evil. So it's a very specific philosophical set of circumstances that are required um, for a defense to be really useful. Um, theodicy is a little bit more you know, high commitment, which is normally when you're offering a theodicy, you're not just saying things that are merely possible. You're kind of, um, you're making statements to which you're committed in some way, you know, things you think are likely to be true. So, um, there are lots of kind of possible reasons why God might allow evils, but typically when we're engaging in, you know, theological talk, we want to be offering really plausible reasons or positive, certainly like things we think are likely, um, and, you know, from scriptural data, from just kind of, you know, common reason and so forth. Uh, and so when you're doing theodicy, you're kind of making statements to which you're committed in, uh, in some way, which you're going to try and defend. And so, um, you know, planning offers a free will defense, but you can offer a free will theodicy as well. You could basically say, not only do I think this is possible, I think this is quite likely that, you know, God um, really genuinely cares about our libertarian free will and has given it to us because it's of such great value. And we find in, throughout the story of scripture that, you know, God kind of gives people the possibility to choose, you know, who they will serve because he genuinely cares about, you know, us freely reciprocating love and obedience. So I know you've developed an aesthetic theodicy. What's an aesthetic theodicy? Hmm. Well, um, aesthetic theodicy is just theodicy that uses aesthetics, which is to say it's, it's just an aesthetics is aesthetics is, is basically the study of perception. Um, very often talking about art and beauty. Uh, and so it's, it's, uh, theology the, and theodicy specifically that's really trying to kind of use the full resources of human creativity and thought, not just philosophical, you know, um, argumentation or even kind of, um, we might sort of, sort of biblical argumentation, but using kind of, uh, the, the world of the arts and human creativity and, um, sort of the domain of perception, thinking about these in order to kind of offer a kind of a full blooded, uh, theodicy as it were. And my work is very academic. I don't know that my work actually is an aesthetic theodicy. I'm just talking about how valuable <laughs> it is, but, um, uh, what, what I was trying to do in my work is to say that, um, to some degree that, you know, humans are, you know, not just thinking things, we're also feeling things and an important element of, um, theodicy is not just kind of knowing that something is valuable, but genuinely feeling that it's, it's valuable. So, um, you can, so if you want to appeal to a greater good, so if I want to appeal to, for instance, the value of free will, right, that just kind of assumes that I can, as it were, perceive the weight of that value. But what if I can't? What if I have a harder time, you know, really comprehending that? How would you make that available to me? Well, one way you can do it is through the arts, through, you know, showing me a movie or reading me a story. I can read a poem. Um, likewise, uh, one of the great goods that the Bible talks about as a way of kind of God makes up to us, as it were, our suffering um, is through um, the kind of bliss of the afterlife, our great reward in heaven. But what if I have a hard time imagining how great a good that is? What what can be done um, for for me to help make that more available? And so here's where I think the arts can be especially valuable. So somebody like C.S. Lewis, we're talking about earlier. 
he um, his work very often is thinking about heaven in his books, like The Great Divorce or The Last Battle. And a lot of people say, you know, this book really made me long for heaven. You know, like for the first time, I actually wanted to be there. He made it possible for me to imagine what a great good heaven could be. And if you want to engage in theological discourse where you appeal to values, you know, this is this great good that, you know, God has, is offering us or that can defeat uh, the evils in our lives. It's very helpful to be able to make people feel the weight of mm. those values. And I think that's where uh, the arts is incredibly valuable. Aesthetics, kind of broadly considered, can bring a lot to theological discourse. And that's what I try and do through most of my work. Uh, well, Phil, thanks so much for for reflecting on this with with us. I I really like that picture of um, the weight of good. Maybe you, you could say right, or I mean Lewis's phrase of the the weight of glory, used in a different sense, of course, but to help us feel and sense, um, uh, help help us feel and sense something that can be be produced only through there being an evil, right? Be, whether it's a depth in art or creativity and fiction or some other kind of uh, good that we're able to perceive in a, in a fuller orb sense beyond simply the, the intellectual. So thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Hopefully you've enjoyed the podcast. I encourage you to check out some other Wesley Seminary episodes as well as we try to resource you for your ministry. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary. <laughs>